Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I was watching a little late night SEC hoops, Kentucky Ole Miss, and it got me, think, it got me thinking about something that I know we've kind of talked about a little bit, but I think it's going to become more and more of a thing. Kentucky basketball is in this category that we're going to see form a lot, and we probably already have. It's the meh COVID year teams. <laughs> that's not to say that fans are just like totally chill with this. I know that's definitely not the case based on my soon-to-be sister-in-law who works at Kentucky and bleeds blue like nobody I know. But let me explain kind of like what I mean by that. And I think you as an LSU fan are the perfect person to bounce <laughs> this idea off yeah. of. So I think there are going to be four teams that maybe three years from now we look back on and whether it's their head coaches, their fans, their administration, whoever it is, they look back on 2020 or 2021 school year and there's like, meh, COVID year. Those teams, Kentucky basketball, already brought it up. LSU football, definitely. Penn State football. And then, of course, the other blue blood in basketball, Duke basketball. Like, to be in this category, you can't be Kansas football where you've been garbage forever and then you just look back and use this year as an excuse. This is like the teams who this is truly going to look like a one-off year. And I don't know how I totally feel about that because I actually think that there are a lot of things that happened this past year that aren't necessarily COVID-related. Like, would Kentucky basketball be better if it had actually had a normal offseason to get all of these guys on the same page and all the moving pieces that they had? Yeah, but it doesn't really change the fact that when four minutes happens in the last minute of a game or in the last four minutes of a game, they basically have no idea how to score points, and it's in March, and that's still happening. Like. LSU hiring a terrible defensive coordinator in Bo Pelini and forgetting how, like forgetting how to play defense with five-star talent all over the place. All right, maybe not five-star talent all over the place, but a lot of five-star talent. Like that, that we're going to overlook probably because three years from now, it's going to look like a one-off and we're just going to end up saying, meh, COVID year. Is that something that you have already told yourself or are you waiting another two years? Oh, I mean, certainly for me. I, I feel like that's been my, my thing towards sports this whole time. It's just like, I'm only going to get positivity out of sports. I don't need any negativity. I don't need to say, like, if we're, like, going back and forth and bantering about sports, it's like, you're not going to make me feel bad for, you know, one of my teams playing poorly during a COVID year. It's like, all right, man, you figured me out. Like, I couldn't go outside for this year and my football team was bad. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just COVID year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's the easiest throwaway thing ever. It's, it's just like, all right, yeah, I don't really, like, I you know, and like, I always say this, like, we talked about Ole Miss before. It's like, yeah, man, like, football or sports is, like, got to be, like, number two priority at best for a lot of these people, you know, and that's a responsible thing. So, yeah, I think sometimes, like, it does, it truly does matter. Sometimes, like you said, like, Vandy going 0-12 is just, or 0-10 is like, yeah, they probably weren't very good. Uh, <laughs> but the Mac COVID year teams, they're going to form, and Coach K, goodness gracious, I'm already looking forward to hearing what he has to say about this year and they're probably going to opt out of once you know what you know what duke's going to do duke is going to opt out when they're losing at halftime in the acc tournament (laughs) or maybe they'll just opt out of the acc tournament altogether i don't know but whatever the case it's going to be a thing anyways didn't want to talk about meh covid year teams this entire episode we have today former mizzou slash clemson quarterback kelly bryant got into a lot of different things including some 
wait for it, positive things about Chad Morris. Yeah. I know, Arkansas fans. Yeah, look, I, I gassed you up last week with the Sam Pittman stuff. Yes, but you're going to want to earmuff at least like one or two parts of this or just not immediately go to another podcast. When you actually consider the role that Chad Morris played in Kelly Bryant's life, you'll understand why he has such a positive outlook on him. But we did talk about much, much more. So great interview with Kelly. Awesome, awesome to be able to talk to him in his new CFL gig. Newsletter, Saturday Football Newsletter. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you're obsessed with college football, you're going to want to get this newsletter. It is free and it comes straight to your inbox, keeping you up to date on major news in college football in just a few minutes. To sign up, go to saturday.football. As I always say, that is the website address. All you have to do is go to your internet browser and punch in saturday.football. It is free. You can unsubscribe if you don't like it at any time, but trust me when I tell you that if you love college football like I do, you're going to love this. Go check it out, saturday.football. Add your email address today. Okay, the thing that we have to talk about that I've been trying to come up with the right words for, but I think with all the different moving pieces, it's it's not always easy to, to just have a standard black and white take. Eric Gilbert, by now, you probably, if you're listening to this, know everything about this Eric Gilbert story. But just in case you don't, here's the rundown. Highest rated tight end recruit in the 24-7 sports rankings era. He played really well as a true freshman at LSU. Then he opts out before the final two games. Then transfers and announces he's going to Florida. Then four weeks later, he's like, nope, just kidding. Um, This past Sunday, he's like, nah, I'm going back into the transfer portal. So what led to that? I don't wanna say that anything is certain. The people that I talked to close to Florida said that this was an issue about grades. Apparently Florida is still working to get him eligible, not looking good. Take that for what it is. If you read between the lines, it would at least make sense because he said he's not announcing his next college until he's on campus. That's not happening until the summer. Cole Kubelik actually said last week that he heard Gilbert wouldn't be suiting up for Florida in 2021. That probably should have been a sign that we should be on red alert, although it did come as a surprise. On a somewhat unrelated note though, I saw a lot of people on Twitter piling on saying that he wasn't going to class. And and I'll just say this, I'm not making excuses if that's the case, because again, I truly don't know. This whole like, hey, you gotta go to class thing, it's it's part of the scholarship deal and the way that it works. But it is weird how with basketball, it's totally different. Kevin Durant doesn't go to class and it's sort of laughed off and the one and dones and all that. And in football, a kid does it and he just gets ripped. And I, I look, I'm not saying that Eric Gilbert should get a pass if that's what happened. I am saying though that Eric Gilbert was just as decorated a recruit as Kevin Durant. And we just treat this totally different in football compared to college basketball. And I saw someone on Twitter throw out the idea, this kid should just be allowed to go pro. Would Eric Gilbert be ready for that in a hypothetical world? I, I don't know. What I do know is that the dude absolutely looks the part. This is the same guy who, in a story written by my fellow Indiana grad Brody Miller in The Athletic before the start of the season, he had these two things that really stood out to me. So Brody talked to a bunch of high school coaches who faced Gilbert when he was a stud at Marietta in Georgia. One coach compared him to Pete Maravich. That is such an incredible comp to make about a high school tight end. The guy quoted Adolf Rupp and said that you can't get in the way of him. Like he's just going to find his way to score and you gotta beat everybody else. 
whatever the case, it was like, this guy can do everything and you got to try and stop other guys because you're just not going to stop that guy. Another said that if you stood him in a room with 10 to 15 NFL players and pick out which one of the guys was a high school senior, you might miss six or seven times before you got to him. Now, sometimes you hear that stuff and you see the product and you're like, nah, this guy's getting a little bit overhyped. Everything I saw from Eric Gilbert as a true freshman confirmed all of that stuff. The cumulative numbers, eh, not all world on the surface. 35 catches, 368 <clears throat> yards, two touchdowns. But keep in mind, that was only eight games. Six of those games, by the way, he had at least four catches. I've said this before, I'll say it again. He had more games with four catches than Kyle Pitts, Hunter Henry, and Evan Ingram had as true freshmen combined. Consider this. I went back and I found every five-star tight end in the 21st century. There were 18 of them on a per-game basis. Zach Miller was the only one who put up better numbers than Gilbert as a true freshman. Will, you've got 10 bucks in your pocket if you can tell me what school Zach Miller went to. And then you've got another 10. Wow. Okay, that's, that's deflating. Okay, you've got another $10 if you can tell me what year he did that in. 2005? Oh, so close. So close. 2004. Very good, though. All right, I'll, I'll PayPal you. <laughs> Apparently nobody does PayPal anymore. I didn't realize that. Everybody's on Venmo. I'm just cleaning up That's on this podcast, I'm. man. You really are. This is this is proving to be definitely worth your time and energy. Um, Eric Gilbert, he played an extremely difficult position, and he looked darn good as a true freshman. The dude played 80 snaps in his first college game. You're not supposed to be able to do that in this league playing tight end. And for all those people who are saying, ah, he's just a receiver, the pass blocking stuff, nah, that's, that is not his thing. The pro football focus number is not good. To be honest though, it probably shouldn't be. Why in the world would you run pass plays and not have him run routes? To me, that's just pure insanity. His future offensive coordinator should have to do 20 pushups every single time he does that. The run blocking though, it was better than you think. And no, he's not George Kittle, but I was watching this breakdown that our buddy CD did of him where he was lined up in line. And LSU just sent him up the gut to take on a linebacker. And it was like, whoa, this kid is not afraid. The SEC tight end ahead of him in the pro football focus run blocking grade was who? It was Kyle Pitts. Kyle Pitts, by the way, improved immensely as a run blocker just to get that grade that was slightly better than Eric Gilbert in terms of run blocking. Kyle Pitts is now more than serviceable as a run blocker. And he's two years older than Eric Gilbert. It's Kyle Pitts, of course, who helped sway Eric Gilbert's decisions to go to Florida in the first place. And it made sense. You know, you follow in Kyle Pitts' footsteps. You get to play in Dan Mullen's offense. You get to play for Tim Brewster. He coached Kyle Pitts. He coached Antonio Gates. Then you become a star. I wrote a week ago that I was hoping that we could avoid the Pitts comps with Eric Gilbert, as inevitable as those were. I just didn't think that holding Eric Gilbert to that standard was unfair because we've never held any tight end in college football history to the standard that Kyle Pitts set in 2020. Now everybody is wondering, what in the world is next for Eric Gilbert? And I don't know, neither do you probably. This whole thing has taken essentially four wild turns in the last four plus months. I think that we are far from over from the Eric Gilbert saga being over. And I don't think this is like a Tate Martell deal. Tate Martell wasn't worth really getting excited about on the field at Ohio State. They did a couple gadget plays with him, but it was, wasn't anything like what Gilbert did as a true freshman where you're comparing him to some of the greats that have come before him. 
This is a Ben Affleck situation. Why do I mention Ben Affleck? There's somebody that I guarantee you nobody else has compared Eric Gilbert to. This is why. Ben Affleck in his mid-20s, he stars in Armageddon, Goodwill Hunting. He starts dating Gwyneth Paltrow, um, somebody by the name of J-Lo. Maybe you've heard of her. Gives us a reason to want to consume him constantly. Ben Affleck to supermarket tabloids is going to be like Eric Gilbert to these message boards. He's already spurned two premier SEC programs. Not as a high school senior, but as a college freshman. We're going to consume and we're going to overconsume his every move. He's given us reason to do that. If you haven't looked on Twitter to see who his latest follows are, you're probably lying to yourself and you're probably going to want to do this after I finish this sentence or maybe you even pause this podcast to go do it, whatever the case. He has given us reason to want to consume him. Plus, we as a society, for whatever reason, we are so fascinated by people on the move. I mean, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, J.J. Watt. We're talking more about these guys now, like since there have been trade rumors, free agency rumors, than we have probably in the last like seven years. And these guys, you know, basically been at their, their respective franchises. I realize Deshaun hasn't been around that long, but you get the point. It's why Ben Affleck and his celebrity divorces always stop the presses. I can already picture, and Will, I'm sure you can too, I can picture the 3.30 CBS game in two years. Gary Danielson is talking about an on-balance line that Gilbert rolls out of for a walk-in touchdown. He brings up the background, which everybody's going to know. He'll talk about how he really found a home at School X. That's about the only prediction I'd make for Gilbert's future. Anyone telling you that he isn't worth the trouble is wrong. Anyone saying he's killing his reputation is wrong. Anyone saying that he's already a bust is definitely wrong. This is already a one-of-one situation. All I know, this guy is worth all of our time and all of our attention. A lot of times during the pre-draft period, I let my instincts take over when talking about prospects. Like, I'm not forced to do mock drafts or anything like that. Well, Adam and I, Adam Spencer and I do one the week of the draft where we kind of trade off making what we feel like would be the best picks for those respective teams. That actually takes a good amount of time. A lot of G-chat hours spent on that. But before that, we don't really have to do any of that in this business. I don't form any of my opinions until I'm asked about someone, and then it kind of forces me. Or if I see something out there that's just totally egregious, like Braxton Miller going into the 2016 draft. He looked really good at the Senior Bowl, and he goes off at the Combine, and suddenly Todd McShay has him as a first-round receiver. That's a case where I'm like, uh, nope. This dude started playing receiver a year ago, and I watched him catch 26 passes in his only season as a receiver. You don't just become a first-round receiver after that. The position is way too hard to master for that to be a realistic possibility. I've sort of done the opposite with this Jamar Chase versus Devontae Smith debate. Whenever I see an argument in favor of one of them, I find myself sticking up for the other. Will, we got into this discussion the other day, and I know that Jamar is your guy, you know, being an LSU guy, but my knee-jerk reaction when someone says he's clearly wide receiver one, I tend to think, all right, well, what more could you have wanted Devontae Smith to do? He had the best season that we've ever seen from a college receiver. He did that for an unbeaten national champion. He took his game to a new level when Jalen Waddle went down. He balled out with two different quarterbacks over the course of his career. I guess you could say three if you want to throw Jalen Hurts in there, but he was basically getting one catch a game as a true freshman until, of course, Tua comes in. He got better and better throughout his college career. His pro football focus grades by year as a true freshman, 55.2. Next year, 75. Year after that as a junior, 82.7. This past year, 
94.9. Some of Devontae's pro football focus numbers are just stupid. His quarterbacks had a passer rating of 152.6 when targeting him. He was the highest graded wide receiver from both the left side and the slot. He's got the most receiving yards after contact the last two years of anyone. Dude weighs a buck 75 soaking wet. That's pretty impressive. That's the biggest knock on him, right? That he's 175 pounds. Pro Football Focus actually had him tied with Jamar Chase in catch rate on contested passes, 49%, which is really, really good. Jamar Chase is 30 pounds heavier than Devontae Smith too. Sam Munson of Pro Football Focus did this great breakdown where he watched every single target that Devontae Smith had. He also floated this question out on Twitter. I think it was like last week. And this is a pretty common thing. And I think it's fun to watch what pre-draft Twitter has to say about some of these guys. But he said, okay, what's Jamar Chase's weakness? I'm not seeing one. And I replied, he doesn't get open when you triple team him. So yeah, that was meant to be like sort of tongue in cheek, whatever, but not really at the same time, because I literally watched him get triple teamed against Oklahoma in the Peach Bowl. They bracketed him the entire game. He only had two catches for 61 yards. Of course, that was the same game. Justin Jefferson goes off, 227, four touchdowns. Literally everyone but Chase beat them that day. I mean, everyone, it was absurd. I'll never forget being in the LSU locker room after that. And I asked, I asked Chase, I'm like, there was talk before this game from their side about shutting you down. What does it say that you guys still went out and put up this type of performance? And all of a sudden he flips this switch into hype man. And he's got Jefferson on his right. And he's like, you just saw it. They can't stop us. They spent all their attention on me and Jets, which is Jefferson's nickname. He goes off like that. This is a guy who won the Bolitnikov. He's 19 years old. He just had two catches in the biggest game of his life. And you would have thought that he had the four touchdown game. That is how hype he was. To me, I filed that away. I'm like, that's the guy I want on my team. Like the guy who takes up so much attention that his teammates can go off and then he's the one who's so fired up about them. And look, Devontae has had moments of that as well. And nobody's gonna say that he has had a bad attitude. But I, I look at, at stuff like that and I'm like, hey, one would think that that's the exact type of mindset you need to have to succeed at the next level. If we're talking about Chase at the next level, I think those things matter. Your wide receiver one, he can't take himself out of the game if it's not all these targets coming his way. I love Amari Cooper, I really do, but he does too much of that for my liking. And it's frustrating if you're a fantasy owner and you've been through that. I don't worry about Jamar Chase doing that. And that's just the mental side. As Sam, as Sam Munson said, the physical stuff is unreal. I've been forcing myself to watch these highlights of Jamar Chase because we didn't get this past season, which is such a shame, man. I really wish we could have gotten junior year Jamar Chase. It would have been so fun. I don't ever want to forget how good Jamar Chase is. Sometimes I'll just turn on the clips of him against Trayvon Diggs. Mike Renner, Pro Football Focus, another guy who we've had on this podcast before, he tweets that out. There are times when I'm like, but what about the fact that Jamar Chase just took that year off? Shouldn't that sort of like count against him? He didn't get those valuable reps. Then I'm like, oh wait, Nick Bosa turned out pretty darn good and he did that. And he skipped his pre-draft year basically after that core body injury against TCU. And you know, Jamar Chase didn't even get injured. He's still been working out. He's still been getting all that training in. You know he's been doing that. My point is I love both of these guys. I love Jamar Chase. I love Devontae Smith. And I'll defend both of them. I really will. So I say all this, but I'm still sitting here scratching my head. Why? because it almost never works out how we think it will. 
If I were a GM in this situation, I'd flip a coin. But history suggests that there's a really good chance I'd be wrong. I went back and I looked up every time in the 21st century that multiple wide receivers were drafted in the top 10. 11 such instances. Will, if you make money off this, I'm going to be depressed. How many of those drafts had multiple wide receivers from the top 10 who made it to multiple Pro Bowls? I'll give you $10 for that and then another 10 bucks if you could tell me who it was and when that draft was. Okay, I'm sorry. Restate the question. You said... All right. Question is, how many of those drafts had multiple wide receivers from the top 10, just the top 10 picks overall, who made it to multiple Pro Bowls? I'll give you $10 if you can answer that question, and then I'll give you 10 bucks if you can tell me who and when it was. Man, I definitely don't have that one because as we like we were talking about the other day, it's like I like move guys up in the draft. Like I I can't like yeah, I thought Judy went top 10 last year. Uh let's see. Uh Yeah. Let me guess 2007. Not a bad guess. The answer is 2011. Ooh. You had AJ Green, AJ Green coming off the board at number 4. You had a certain Julio Jones coming off the board at number 6. Ah. That draft was that draft's the outlier though. Mm-hmm. What what's way more common is like 2003. Charles Rogers is drafted number two overall. Andre Johnson is drafted number three. 2004, Larry Fitzgerald number four. Roy Williams at number seven. Even 2014, Sammy Watkins, who was as much of a can't-miss prospect as there was, it felt like, he goes number four. Mike Evans goes number seven. And it pains me to say this, but I'll just say it for the hell of it. Amari Cooper goes number four in 2015, and then Kevin White goes number seven. The bus rate on these guys is just so unbelievably high. And if if you go the entire first round even and not just look at the top 10, there are only three drafts in the 21st century that had multiple receivers making multiple Pro Bowls. 2010, 2011, 2014. By the way, this is going to be the first time in four years that any receiver is drafted in the top 10. It's almost like general managers picked up on this trend. I looked it up. It's, it's an unbelievable thing to think about. Even last year when we're talking about all this great receiver talent with Judy and Ruggs and Jefferson and like nobody went in the top 10. This draft feels very much like it could be a 2011 repeat with AJ Green, Julio Jones. That's what general managers picking wide receivers in the top 10 are hoping. Both of those guys went to seven Pro Bowls. It helped that they basically played with the same quarterback for a decade as well. That could kind of make or break this Devontae versus Jamar argument. What this is already setting up, though, is something pretty obvious because both are so highly regarded and we could see one fail and it's like, wow, we knew the other would be better. But did we? I don't know. Go back to that debate with AJ and Julio. AJ was, he was the clear-cut wide receiver one and then Julio runs that 4-3-9-40 at the combine and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, we need to be taking this dude that much more seriously and it's like, all right, this, this is a real debate. A.J. Green goes number four, and then the Falcons trade up to get Julio at six. A.J. Green actually made two all-pro teams before Julio made one. People forget that. Huh. Latter, latter half of their careers, it favors Julio, but still, could that happen again? Sure. Both Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith were more productive college players than either of those two guys. For all I know, general managers have their brains in a pretzel like me. It would suck, though. It would absolutely suck to be the one who gets this wrong because it feels like there shouldn't be a wrong answer. Here's hoping that there isn't a wrong answer and I could just defend both of them for a decade after they've made a bunch of Pro Bowls.
Yeah, the thing about that too, sorry, the thing about that too is like Kyle Pitts, man. Like, I mean, realistically, like to me, that guy is almost the most sure thing in the draft. And so it's like, if you're sitting there and you're a GM and you need like a pass catcher, it's like, do I take that freak of nature that there are like two of walking around on this earth? Like, it's just like looking at, if you're an SEC fan, you have something in this, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, this is just an exciting year for a draft. Jalen Waddle, another guy who I'm sure people listening to that are like, hey, I take Jalen Waddle over both of those guys. I'm thinking to myself, all right, yeah, that's cool. That's a little bit of a roll of the dice, but man, it just, it so rarely works out with these guys in the top 10 where we think we have a can't miss prospect at receiver. And I, man, I don't know if I had to do this evaluation, I would just toss and turn about this all the time. Like if I'm sitting there as the Dolphins, I think we're going to see teams that are going to trade back and just hope that someone makes that decision for them. I, I truly think that that could happen because, man, picking between these guys, it just did not seem like a fun thing to have to do. All right, let's go to my interview with Kelly Bryant. Kelly was great. I remember really, really liking him at SEC Media Days when he was there with Mizzou a couple years ago. Kind of weird to see a guy who just got to a school represent that school at SEC Media Days. It doesn't happen a whole lot. But I, I just remember that day thinking he was such a great face of the program. So we got to talk about some Clemson things, a little bit of Mizzou, that time that he needed emergency surgery in high school, and of course his new CFL gig. So here is Kelly Bryant. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is former Mizzou slash Clemson quarterback and new Toronto Argonauts quarterback, Kelly Bryant. Kelly, first of all, the new CFL deal, um, two-part question have you moved to Toronto yet, and have you ever been to Canada before? Um, so first, well, actually, no to both of those. I'm not moved in yet. I'm still in South Carolina. I think the borders don't open up till this weekend, actually. So, you know, still here, you know, trying to figure some stuff out. You know, still training uh, before I get ready to go up there for training camp. And yeah, not never been to Toronto or Canada. Nor have I. I was going to ask you some stuff, but apparently we'll have to circle back. We'll, we'll get the full rundown on poutine and all that. Um, I saw that you joked that you were close to filing for unemployment. I'm sure the pandemic has impacted a lot of this, you know, because I know you're hoping to catch on with an NFL team and you, you did the tryout thing. I know you're getting into the vlogging game a bit, too. What's this last year or so been like on you? Man, it's literally been a test of faith. Um, you know, just with the whole pan pandemic, you know, everybody, you know, having to deal with it. So it actually wasn't me just going through it. So, you know, it was really tough, you know, going, you know, from, you know, training, getting ready for a pro day to instantly having to move back home and, you know, like I said, just being in the house and trying to stay safe, you know, my family and everybody. So, you know, it's been a whirlwind, you know. Fortunately, I did get an opportunity for a workout with the um, Cardinals. So I was, you know, grateful for that with, without having a pro day. But, you know, other than that, you know, it's really been stagnant, didn't really hear anything, you know, just, you know, having to support my friends, you know, that was the first year, first years in the league. So just from that standpoint, just really just being a fan of the game, you know, but also still working on my craft, you know, at the end of the day. But, you know, like I said, it's been a, a big test of faith. Um, but, you know, it's all on his timing. And, um, you know, sometimes, like I said, I was close to following for unemployment. I mean, it was. It was times I, I was like, I didn't really know, you know, if there was going to be an opportunity, you know, for me to actually fill up and play again. So, um, you know, I'm just grateful um, for the Toronto taking a chance on me. And I can't wait to get to work and, you know, get, you know, back into the routine and flow of things of being, being on the team. 
I've got about a million things that I want to talk to you about. When you get interviewed or someone recognizes you in public, maybe it depends on where you are, but what's the first thing that they mention to you? Well, I can say this year, like I said, being home, um, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't on the team. Like Everybody was asking, like, are you still playing? What you doing now? And, you know, you know, at, at first, you know, um, it was fine. But, like, like I said, kept getting those questions of, like, like, okay, I'm I'm still working out, you know, I'm not done with it. And really I had um I had interviewed for an actual job like twice and but you know, I really got to it and I was like, nah, I can't I said if I go through it, you know, I'm gonna be done and you know, I'm not gonna be like fully invested, you know, and still playing ball and trying to work a job. So I was like, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna give up yet, I don't wanna give up yet on it. You know, I still have, you know, some ball left in me. I'm still young and I'm in good health, good shape, so I'm just gonna keep the foot on the gas and, you know, just ride this thing out till it can't no more. What was the, the job that you were interviewing for? Uh, I was going to interview for, I was interviewing for uh, Northwestern Mutual. So that was why, that good was job. why one of my good friends, I, <laughs> one of my good friends I played with at Clemson, you know, just started there. He put in a good word for me. The people over there were really great, you know, for us, like wanting to help me, you know, like life after football. And, you know, they told me, you know, if, Whenever you know you're done, you're really done with it. You know you have opportunity to come back. So it was it was a great experience. You know, just get, conducting myself in an interview. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, I wanted to play football, and I knew I could still play football. Your last year has been pretty crazy. Your entire backstory is crazy. I remember watching the episode of College Game Day where they profile what you went through with your emergency surgery, and just thinking to myself, "Wow, I had no idea." how close you were to not playing football. And your teammates didn't even know mm. until that off season. I'm sure that there mm. are people listening to this right now who don't really know what I'm talking about. Can you explain what you went through when you were a senior in high school? Uh, yeah, so um, it was around like when I was 12 years old, um, I got diagnosed with uh, Crohn's disease. And so basically uh, me being a 12 year old kid, first thing I heard, I didn't even hear Crohn's, I just heard disease. And um, I did not know know how to feel, know how to react. One day I was worried about, like, is it curable? Is it curable? What can I do to, like, get it out of my body? Um, and then just basically, like, from, i say around, around, like, 9 to 12, I just had, like, occurring stomach pains that, you know, I would go through on, like, ra literally random times, you know, throughout the day. And we, me and my family, we just thought I was um, lactose intolerant. So we kind of cut out on the milk and cheese. And, you know, it still didn't work. I was still having these pains. And we just got to a point where we didn't know what was going on, so we went to a doctor, and then that's why, like I said, I got um, diagnosed as Crohn's. And so fast forward to um, high school, it was during basketball season. Um, I think during that, it was like two weeks before the uh, basketball game, I had been feeling really sick. And so we thought um, that was a flu. It was kind of it was flu season as well. So we thought um, I had the flu because, you know, Having Crohn's, I'm, e I'm easily um, get, attract, you know, like the fluid stuff like that because my stomach is really, my immune system is kind of weak, and um, so I haven't been feeling well. So get to the game, I didn't really play, then got to halftime and literally just collapsed in the middle of the floor, throwing up, um, throwing up blood and whatever I ate, or at least tried to eat. And like I said, the team had already left when I was um, throwing up sitting there in the locker room. So I guess. Um, one my um, head coach, athletic director, he came in like well, everybody was just wondering where I was, and he found me there. Literally got rushed to the um, hospital, 
and that's when they found out I had a, a pulse pocket the size of a softball. And I, and prior to that, I was getting um, these these injection shots to kind of like tame it. Like I said, I thought I was like had the flu, and literally I was scheduled to get um, another shot um, the day after the game. And so when I got rushed to the hospital, that's when the doctor said if I would have got that shot, which I was scheduled to get, it literally would have ruptured the pulse pocket would have ruptured and spread throughout my body and instantly could have killed me. So, um, literally, I went from being a, one of my best shapes in high school. I'm, like, 215, like, everything looking good, like, you know, looking really good, healthy and everything. So, now I'm laying in the hospital bed. I got tubes going down my uh, my throat, like, literally sucking up all the um, the infection out of my body. And I'm, I can't talk, can't eat, can't drink anything. I'm just sitting there looking at looking at my family. You know, everybody's, like, very emotional. And I can't say anything. And it was, it was a really tough time. But, man, like I said, just that faith and a lot of prayer and a lot of really great people around me. And I can't thank um, the, the doctors and the nurses down there at Augusta Health um, in Georgia for, you know, taking the time out to, you know, get me back to speed, you know, get me back in school, allow me to continue spring ball and also get me back to my senior year. So, like I said, it's been really a whirlwind, um, like off the field as much as on the field. So that's just been like little, little, literally just a little bit about me. You know what I deal with on a daily basis. That's crazy. I mean, I think besides the obvious of how scary that was to experience in the moment for you to go from being like 215 pounds in incredible shape, like you said, to probably a buck 60, whatever it was that mm. you got down to, and knowing knowing that the road that that awaited was so daunting how in the world did you approach all that with your diet your training and, and knowing that you didn't want anyone to have a reason to take that scholarship away from you man it's crazy because like um i think what really gave me the motivation um because back in my head i'm like like i said i'm looking in the mirror like i'm lifting up my shirt and um i got a, a colonoscopy bag lily attached to my side or showing my intestines and I'm lifting up my shirt, and that's literally what I'm looking at every single day. So I'm looking at literally ribs. Like, I'm I'm skinny now. I can actually see my skull and everything. So that just gave me a little bit of motivation. And then on top of that, uh, I literally remember uh, being in the bed, like I said, still getting recruited. Some schools knew, but some schools didn't. But I remember Clemson, Coach Morris at the time, you know, he said, no matter what, we're still going to honor your scholarship. So that really, like, kind of sold me you know, anything like trying to get back, you know, to my health and everything. So, you know, just having that extra drive and crazy part is I had to learn how to walk again, had to learn how to do everything, even to learn how to use the bathroom again. So, man, it was, it was definitely, you know, tough and hard, you know, tell us definitely was some times where I was, you know, crying, crying to my parents, my grandparents that was there and just kind of, you know, just trying to figure it out. But, you know, like I said, just having good support staff, and good people in my corner, you know, that they made the that whole road to recovery, um, you know, that much, you know, more gratifying, you know, when I got past it. Did you have any programs who bailed on you and took that scholarship away? Um, I'm I'm not gonna say they bailed on me, but they just didn't recruit me as hard. I I say that. You know, I'm not gonna throw nobody on the bus, but yeah, it was a couple schools that, you know, kinda let off the gas with me. They say, though, that timing is everything in life. And the timing that you had at Clemson where, you know, Chad Morris goes out of his way to make sure that you're going to be able to, to still have that scholarship honored. I know that meant a lot to you, like you said. 
it really set up for such a unique college experience that you were able to have where you get there and you hear about the Sean Watson constantly. And then all of a sudden, it's all about Trevor Lawrence. When you show up there and Deshaun has the year that he has in 2015, I got to imagine that at some point, it felt like when you're the younger sibling and the older sibling just does everything so perfectly. I know you've had some, you had some of those tough moments there in your first two years waiting behind Deshaun. How close were you at any point to, to leaving Clemson in those first couple of years? <laughs> oh, man, it was tough. Um, especially like being in South Carolina, you know, staying home, playing for the home the home state, you know, having, you know, friends and family literally coming up to the games, even when I even wasn't even playing. And so I'm like, man, I, I want to play. You know, that's just my, my you know, nature, you know, competitive nature, you know, wanting to play, you know, having success pretty much since rec league, middle school, and all the way up to high school. Like, man, I know I want to play, I want to play. And there was times, you know, where I, you know, would talk to my uncle. I was like, man, I, I don't think I can do another year. And it was like my freshman year. And, you know, it was just me being young and not really understanding, you know, who I had in front of me, you know, rather than, you know, really just sitting there watching him how he constructed himself. Because there's a reason why he was playing and there's a reason why he was playing at such a high level. Um, and there was a lot of things that he was doing that I literally had to just sit and just watch, you know, from a, 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 literally a, a step back, you know, how he conducted himself in the, in the um, film room, the weight room. Okay. The film room, weight room. And then uh, – just looking at stuff like that, it's like, okay, there's, maybe there's a reason why I ain't playing. I ain't, I'm not just ready yet, but literally just take these two years, these use these learning years, you know, just to, you know, help prepare me for when my time is ready. You know, I got, you know, I got all these tools that to my toolbox to go along with, you know, things that how, how I do things in my game, you know, that I can implement from the shine. And also um, Nick Schuster, that was another older guy that was there as well. I know it didn't really end the way that you wanted it, but 2017, the year had to be so special for you. You lead Clemson to a number one seed in the playoff. You're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and you're quieting so many of those doubters who said that Clemson is going to fall off the second Deshaun leaves. I know that guys say all the time, you know, I'm just thinking about playing my game and controlling what I can control, all that stuff. But honestly, you're a competitor, and you heard the noise. How much did that Deshaun standard sort of drive you that year? Oh, man, it drives me a lot because, like I said, we had just won it. You know, we had – Clemson was already steadily on the um, the rise, you know, being able to play for a national championship my freshman year and won it my, um, my sophomore year. So now, okay, here's an opportunity for me, you know, compete for a starting job and, you know, keep it – keep, you know, the standard going. And so it meant a lot for me to, you know, not let it be any drop-off because, you know, being a quarterback – you know, at Clemson, you know, that really, you know, everyone looks at you, you know, when everything's good and when everything's bad. So, um, you know, but the biggest thing, you know, that I took from it, and like even Deshaun told me, God, you know, reached out to him, you know, before like training camp. And he was just like, man, listen, just be you. You know, I had, you know, I have been in the same situation where, you know, he was coming behind Todd's, you know, another great Clemson quarterback, you know, that was, you know, one that kind of got the ball, the ball rolling, you know, in the program is where it is today. So, you know, he was saying, you know, everybody's going to try to, you know, tell you this, tell you that, you know, tell you it's going to be a drop-off. But listen, you know you at the end of the day, you know, you know your game, and everything's going to take care of itself. So, you know, I took that and just ran with it that whole year. 
Trevor shows up on campus. Everyone knows he's the number one recruit, and obviously you're the incumbent starter. So you're in a tough spot knowing that the fan base kind of wants that this this everybody wants this guy to be a superstar. They want to see him as much as possible. Was there a moment that you realized, oh my gosh, this dude, the guy with pretty long hair, he's pretty special. Is there a moment that kind of stands out in your mind? Um, yeah. Um, like I said, I already knew, like, because he's from Georgia. I mean, kind of already heard about him um, through recruiting. You know, he was coming up for games. But really just stuck out. I mean, I guess spring practice, you know, we got there, you know, some of the throws they was making. I mean, you can't – like, it's like you can't – you make it up. Like, this dude, like, a freshman already coming in here and making some of these plays. So, you just got to give credit where credit due. You know, it just kind of just was a kind of just a, a bad situation, a tough situation, you know, for me. And, you know, just – you know, just at the end of the day, man, you you know, he's going to be a special player in the league. Um, look for him to be the first guy off the board. So, you know, all the work that he's put in, you know, it's nothing that, you know, I didn't think that he was going to do, you know, throughout his career when he got there. Do you still text with those guys, Trevor and, and Deshaun? What's what's that relationship like with them? Um, I, I haven't texted with Trevor. I've actually seen him before the um, this past season. I was up in Clemson with some of the guys you know, I still you know, hang out with. Um, so I haven't texted him and like talked to him since then. But uh, Deshaun, uh, I haven't talked to him in a little bit. But you know, but you know, it's all love. You know, whenever we see each other out in public, type stuff. You did something that I know you took a ton of heat for at the time, but I think it speaks to your awareness of understanding the situation. You and Trevor are splitting the snaps, splitting reps. So you take advantage of this new redshirt rule and you announce that after the fourth game of the year, you're leaving Clemson. Can you explain your thought process and the backstory that went into what was at the time a pretty unprecedented decision to make? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it was <laughs> it was a crazy time. Um, like I said, from game one, it was kind of like rotating like, um, like I would be the starter, but um, like I'll go two series, he'll go two, then two, two, then Lily, you know, coach is like, we're just going to go with the hot hand. And, um, you know, that was just kind of like the rotation through the first four games. And then, you know, the coaches sat me down and was like, um, we're going to go with Trevor. And like I said, I had kind of already heard about the rule, like the four-game rule. And then I – Lucky for me, I didn't get redshirted uh, when I was, you know, bagging up Deshaun those first two years. So it's kind of was like worked out for me, and you know, in the um, long run. Um, granted, that I wish I would kind of like during those moments, I kind of wish I would have got redshirted. But like everything works itself out at the end of the day. But um, yeah, so after the fourth game, you know, I had to literally just sit down and like just like re reevaluate some things, you know, re about me as a player. And, you know, because at the end of the day, that was literally the last thing I wanted to do was leave. But, you know, I felt like to get to where I wanted to be and to give myself a opportunity, you know, just to still play and play and finish out my senior year, I think I, I, I sat and said the best thing is going to be for me is just to take advantage of this rule and uh, transfer. Um, but it, it kind of hurt. Well, it didn't kind of hurt. It did hurt. Um, I built those relationships with the coaches the players and all the people, support staff, you know, in the program, you know, just having to leave, you know, in the middle of the season where, you know, everyone was blowing it up, you know, making it a big deal. Um, so it was tough, but at the end of the day, I had to make a business decision. I'll be honest. I know you sided with him, but, and I know you don't want to throw him under the bus. I thought it was total BS of Dabo not to give you a ring after they won it all that year when you <laughs> played on that team. 
I mean, did you feel like that was, you know, is that just something that's overblown? Like you don't really care about that stuff or what did you kind of feel about that and the way that all of that went down kind of in the aftermath? I mean, you know, it is what it is. Um, would I, I love ring? Yeah, but, you know, I get it. Um, I didn't finish the year out, but, you know, I when because I, I was actually getting questions about it, like when I was at Mizzou during spring ball, so I'm like, I'm here at Mizzou. Like, I'm not even thinking about a ring now. But, you know, like I said, it is what it is. You know, I, I get it. Um, but, you know, I'm not – I wasn't too big on it. You know, if I got a ring, I got a ring. If I didn't, you know, it was, it was all right. A lot of people were surprised that you went with Mizzou to spend your last college season. I know that you strongly considered Arkansas to reunite with Chad Morris. And, man, they, I mean, it seemed like they treated you like a king when, when you were there. And I know UNC was on the table as well. But you wanted to play in this, this pro-style system, and Mizzou offered you the chance to be able to do that. How hard was it to call up Chad Morris, given what you went through in the recruiting process with him kind of honoring that scholarship? How hard was it to call him up and tell him that you weren't coming to Arkansas? Man, it was hard because um, that was literally the first school, like I think, time that I went to compliance and like told them. Well, not even that, probably like time that everybody found out that I was committing, like, the whole fan base was literally going crazy. Everybody like Kelly to um, Fayetteville. That's the only one makes sense. Coach Moore is there. And at the time, you know, that was, you know, looking for a quarterback. And so, like I said, that relationship we had already had and being like looking at it from high school standpoint, um, I always wanted to play in for Coach Morris and, you know, be his guy. So I was like instantly, I was like, okay, that would make total sense. Just go there, you know, play with Coach Morris. And like I said, when I was a kid, he honored that scholarship. So that, that mean, meant even more. But, um, you know, when I was on the visit, you know, they showed so much love. And like I said, it was it was really hard to, like, not go there. You know, what was even even harder, you know, just the, the type of guy that he is, man. He's a very, very real, genuine dude. So, um, you know, it was tough. But like I said, at the end of the day, you know, I want to go play in the offense. You know that that's gonna challenge me and also prepare me. You know for you know making that jump to the NFL or whatever. You talk about that offense. Um, I remember SEC media days that year and being super impressed by the way that you came across. It sort of explained why someone who had never played a down for a program was chosen to represent it, which doesn't really happen that often. I know that year didn't necessarily it, it didn't really play out the way that you hoped it would with the injury and Mizzou getting the raw deal with the bull ban. It, it played a part in all of that, but. How did that year that you spent in Columbia, how did that help you become more pro-ready? Oh, man. So I'm literally on my own, don't know nobody. So I actually didn't have a car in my first semester. So, you know, I having to get up, get up, get a, get around on my on my own, you know, Ubers. And being at the facility from literally morning workout to probably like 7 o'clock at night because, you know, I'm trying to learn this offense, get ready for spring ball, you know, just trying to invest all of these, you know, time and days and minutes, you know, that I can to take advantage of this whole year. And man, like I said, it was it was some, you know, some blocks in the road, you know, that occurred. You know, like the time I got there, you know, the bowl band, then you know having to, you know, deal with that and just kind of, you know, just keep the locker room together, and then also just getting you know, plagued by injuries. You know, it kind of just felt like a, you know, ongoing, you know, occurrence. But, you know, just what I can say is I learned a lot about myself, you know, for us, you know, just just being able to, you know, adapt to a whole new environment, you know, where I 
don't know my surroundings, don't know anyone here, but being able to leave impact on a culture and on program, you know, that I feel like, you know, to this day, you know, I have still good connections with. So, you know, that's just pretty much, you know, what that year, you know, meant to me. All right. I want to close with, uh, I got five rapid fire questions to get you out of here on just quick answers. First thing that comes to mind, you don't have to go in depth on any of these unless you want. Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. All right. Perfect. Perfect. So if you're an NFL coach, I give you Deshaun or Trevor for the next 10 years <laughs> on your team. Who's your guy? Oh my gosh. Yeah, man. I mean, <sighs> you really did that. Uh, well, you got generation <laughs> talent. Um, both gonna be really successful. Well, one's already been successful, but I mean, I guess you got to go with experience right now. Um, Deshaun, you know, he's killing it right now. So um, I'm gonna go with Deshaun, you know. But it's it, it's not a easy, you know, easy just for me just to say Deshaun as well. But I'm gonna go with experience and the guy that's been there, done it, and still doing it at a young age. So, but Trevor's right there though for sure. All right, if you thought that one was tough, this one you, you'll like even more. Uh, the, the Hunter Renfro National Championship touchdown, offensive pass interference or not? Ah. Hey, <laughs> ref called touchdown. I don't, I don't see no interference. That was a good call play. <laughs> you see Hunter set him up, so, hey, that's on him to get out of the way. Good answer, good answer. Favorite road venue in college? Ooh, ah, man. Ooh, so I'm a uh, dang. I was gonna give you one that you expect. I'm gonna go. Mm, I ain't gonna disrespect them. I'm going with UGA at a night game at uh, Sanford Stadium. Got it's a must. UGA. I was there that night that you played at UGA too, and I remember seeing you warm up, and I'm like, wait, Kelly's gonna play this game? I, I thought I remember being on the field, and I'm like, all ready to go. I'm like, it's gonna be a much better game, and then he didn't end up playing. So I mean, you were kind of responsible yeah, for man. what turned out to be a really lopsided game, I guess. Yeah, man, I was I was literally itching, trying to you know push for me to play. So literally, that was 40 minutes from my house, so I had tons of family because they didn't even know you know that I wasn't playing. So. You know, it was it was that's one of those when I, I wish I could have you know moments, but you know it kind of worked out. Maybe I could have maybe if I would have played, I got even hurt hurt even more. So kind of thank the coach True. for you know not letting me play on that one. Fair point. Fair point. You uh you gave them the thumbs down after the touchdown in College Station. How how far ahead of time <laughs> did you have that celebration planned? And then also, what did Dabo say when he saw it? Um, so, um, JC Chalk, he was actually from Texas and, um, he was telling me like, well, he was telling us, cause we were just like trying to think of stuff. Cause you know, you gotta be really quick, um, for like with the celebrations, because if you get a flag, I promise you, you would not hear the end of it from Coach mm-hmm. Sweeney. So, uh, he was talking about something like, you know, they do the gig them, And I was like, maybe, maybe if I got, cause he, he had said something about to put up like the, um, the hook them. Cause you know, Texas takes them. They don't really, they really hate each other, so they'll hate that. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to throw up another school. I'm just going to turn the gig upside down. And I was like, when the opportunity presents itself, and luckily, you know, I was able to make a play and literally just in the moment type things and just turn it upside down. But Coach Swing, I don't even think he really paid any attention, didn't see it, because uh, he didn't really mention anything to me that night about it. Goodness, you dodged a bullet on that. Didn't even have to see it in the film study or anything like that. That's lucky. Exactly. That's lucky. Last one I'll get you out on. Um, 
you, you can finish the sentence here. Kelly Bryant will be on an NFL roster by... Kelly Bryant's focusing on CFL. That's the end of the day with there me. Um, I'm there invested. You know, I'm not there you know, trying to play a year and get out of there. Um, I'm there to, you know, who knows when. But, you know, I'm going to be there, you know, be in the moment, not trying to rush and get back to the NFL. But like I said, I'm, I'm just happy to be playing ball right now, right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kelly, this has been great. I, I can't wait to see what's next for you, man. Best of luck, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Have a good one. Excellent. You too. Take care. Today in Figuring It Out, we're doing a subject that I think a lot of people can relate to. We're talking fan rage. Now, I know that in the past when I've talked about it might mean too much, some of this stuff might have overlap, and I get that, but... I think it's different to do it for figuring out because we're talking about cringe moments, like the moments that you look back and you're like, what in the world was I doing? That is hard to accept. And you're able to talk about it. And that's the good thing. It's not something that just happened last week, or maybe it is. And you still let us know about it. So thank you to everybody in the Facebook group who submitted answers. We have so, so many good responses for this. I knew that we would. Y'all came through in a big way on that. Will, before we get rolling here, I've got like, Three quick stories. I can't wait about to hear these. Fan rage. I've been excited about these for days. All right, do you want me to start? Yes. Okay. So I had one in college where I'm a junior going into my senior year of college, and I was living in Bloomington for the summer. Whatever, that's not important. Um, Chicago sports fan. That's me through and through. When the Bulls lost Game Five against Miami, that first year where the Heat were like you know on the rise and really good. And they lose game five after the Bulls went up 1-0 and then lost four straight, which is just like the biggest kick to the nuts ever as a sports fan when that happens because you get your hopes up and you're like, oh, my team's going to the finals and that's not happening. When that final buzzer sounded and LeBron is celebrating and LeBron's going to the finals, everybody hates LeBron. Let's just say I may or may not have thrown a wood bat outside of our house and let out... And again, this is this is before some things changed in my life. Let out one of the loudest F-bombs in my life. And you know, I didn't break a TV. I did break that bat. That bat like splintered on that tree. That was not good. I threw it like from our porch and our we had this massive tree out in front that was probably like, I don't know, 10, 15 feet away. It was too close to sustain the life of that bat. But I was not happy. I was not happy. And like I said, I mean, I've, I don't curse anymore. Kind of, that's a, that's a different story for a different time. But that was one of the last moments where I realized I probably get a little bit too upset about sports and I shouldn't let it out that way. Um, so that's one. The other time, 2015, this is 2015. This isn't a cursing story, I promise. Um, 2015, I am at a Cubs Rockies game with all of my buddies. I had just gotten this very job. So I was at home briefly and I was going to be coming down to Orlando like in a week and a half. And just in case for those of you who don't have a map in front of you, Orlando and Chicago are not very close. So the amount of Cubs games that I can see on a regular basis, not a whole lot. So I'm at, I'm at Wrigley with, you know, with my buddies and it's a night game and my best friend in the world, Bronson first, if you're listening to this, which he's, he's a casual listener as even as an Iowa fan. Bronson is starting a new job the next day, and the Cubs go into the bottom of the ninth 
they are down a run, which you're very much still in the game. For those of you who even don't follow baseball, you know that that's lock it in time. You're staying for the rest of the game. Bronson is my ride home. Bronson says to all of us, I start a new job tomorrow. I need to be up at a certain time. We're leaving now. I thought he was just joking at first. Bronson now lives a block away from Wrigley Field, and he is as diehard of a Cub fan as anybody I know. I would. I looked at him like I'm just. I'm just stunned that you would that you even think that. And I, I try to talk him out of it, and he's like, "Nope, new job tomorrow. Working at Allstate. We gotta go." I reluctantly stomp out of the stadium. Oh, it gets worse. I stomp out of the stadium with him. We don't get to the end of the corner of the street before Chris Bryant hits a two-run walk-off home run to beat the Rockies. Now this is like this is like late July or something like that. So playoff race is picking up. And we hear this happen and we search on our phone what just happened. And that street corner, I yelled at him for a solid like five minutes. Where I just said, that's the most selfish thing that you have ever done. I couldn't believe that 20 minutes of your time was was wasted on that one. Hey, by the way, I'm moving away. I'm moving thousands of miles away here. I don't know the next time I'm going to a Cubs game. Ironically enough, I haven't been to Wrigley Field since then in 2015. I was supposed to for my my 30th birthday last year. COVID kind of ruined all of that. It was going to be great. But that hasn't happened. So... Long story short, I blasted him. And by the time that we, we got home, he was like distraught about it. I could ask him about it to this day and he still feels terrible. But it was one of those things where I'm just like, how can you not have the presence of mind to recognize this is a one run game in a Cubs team that was actually like, you know, in the pennant race and they went to the NLCS that year, whatever, that's not important. But it did kind of spark the Cubs run right after that. And then they go on to the NLCS. But anyways, so that's another rage incident. The one that happened most recently and this is one that my wife loves to bring up. It's 2017, so this is the year after the Cubs won the World Series. I said when the Cubs won the World Series, and you know, we all do our sports prayers. We say, hey, Lord, if you can just have, just let me have this one title. I'll never ask for anything. But 2016 and the hell that we all went through as Cubs fans to get to that point and the way that it played out in game seven, I said many a thing that night where I'm like, I'll, I promise you, I'll never ask for anything again. And I, I've truly tried to stick, stick to that in the last five years where I don't find myself getting as bummed out about the losses, whatever. But the year after this, 2017, when I'm like, all right, Cubs, Cubs are on the brink of a dynasty. It's the NLCS. It's against the Dodgers. It's game two. The Cubs are already down 1-0. And the Cubs in the bottom of the ninth in LA, John Madden, Joe Madden. I'm in football mindset right now. Joe Madden calls on 38-year-old John Lackey to come into the game a day after he pitched in relief. This is someone who's never pitched on relief in consecutive days. 38-year-old John Lackey, who had nothing left in the tank, it comes into this game. Don't you know it? The second he comes in, Justin Turner hits a three-run walk-off home run to win game two. And I'm just like sitting in my chair watching this as a 27-year-old adult, and I just yell, Lackey? Lackey? And I lost it. Like the arrogance of Joe Madden in that spot to bring in John freaking Lackey when he had I, he had two stud close like two stud relief pitchers in the bullpen and he just overthought the moment and to this day Lauren still brings that up all the time where she's like whenever I I'm like oh I don't really get heated she's like Lackey <laughs> I can't even like get that high it's almost like the playoffs it's basically that tone but I can't even get there at this point. 
But I was so upset because I just thought it cost the Cubs a chance at a title and it changed the entire you know shape of the series and they weren't gonna beat the Dodgers anyways, but whatever. With age comes maturity. Double doink happened and I was like, no rage, just silence as a Bears fan. I was actually like pretty calm, cool and collected going through that surprisingly. But I, I survived that, so I'd like to think that I've overcome those moments. You know, talk to me when one of my teams is actually competing for a title, though. Everything changes then. Those are like the most Connor stories of all time. I absolutely love the detail that you just had a wooden bat laying around. Like, that's like that time my mom killed a snake with a gumbo pot. That is just the most, like, uniquely used story. <laughs> that is, Yuck, that is Louisiana. Yep. I mean, pretended was, you were uh, Pretended you were Chris Bryant. It just whopped. You know, and Chris Bryant wasn't even a thing yet because this is like 20, this is 2011. So like mm-hmm. I, I was, I basically like, I, I flung that sucker. My goodness. And that <laughs> F-bomb, I, I guarantee you there are a lot of people that heard that F-bomb and are like, wait a minute, why is this guy letting out an F-bomb on a Saturday afternoon? Like what is wrong with this dude? Um, where several, several blocks heard that. But yeah, those are, those are my, my worst examples. What do you got? So, I weirdly don't have a ton of fan rage stories. I think as a Saints fan, you just kind of have to accept death. Um, but, true. Uh, <laughs> I have one from my buddy. Um, let me try to take as many details out of this as I can. This was several years ago. We were in New Orleans watching the Saints versus his team, who are a proud franchise, and boy, didn't look like it on that night. And the Saints just shellacked them. And we were leaving, and he was mad. And of course, Saints fans were like giving him crap, and like thankfully I was there, so I kind of like got most of them out of there. But wait a minute, wait a minute! You can't even say the franchise; it's this bad. Like this guy really did this much of a disservice to the team that he roots for. Well, I don't want him getting. I don't want him, you know, hearing it and being like, "Oh, dude!" But yeah, so all right, well, far away. Here you go. Here you go. It's the Philadelphia Eagles. You remember that Eagles okay. game against the Saints? Of course. That was real bad. It was the biggest loss of a defending Super Bowl champion ever. So we went to that game. Um, that was like you know early season 2017 so we're walking out and this for whatever reason this bus driver starts like honking at him aggressively and so my buddy just walks up and punched a bus (laughs) are we talking coach bus are we talking school bus no it was a nice bus i don't know if it was a team bus I, i mean the guy was parked in like a pretty secluded area so like I don't know what this guy, he was like honking aggressively at my friend. I don't know why to like, to get him to stop talking or something. But dude just directed all of his rage in one place and just punched the hell out of the window. And I thought it was going to break for a second, which is shocking because my friend is like kind of small. So the bus driver gets out of the bus and he starts like yelling at my friend. And I literally picked him up and carried him out of there. I was like, sir, we're good. Because I was fine. I didn't have any issues. I picked up my buddy. Took him away from this angry bus driver who was a good 5-4. Like, it would have been a good fight. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's one. Like I said, I, that has nothing to do with me. I do have a question for you, though, because this is a good moment of fan rage. This was a moment of really figuring it out for me. I want to ask what you would do in this situation because I think, SDS, your situation is a little bit different from mine. So I went to a Braves game. Um, my, my stepdad's company had tickets. They never use them because they live in Birmingham. And it was really good seats. It was behind home plate. It was against like the, uh, it was against like Kansas City. It, it wasn't like a big deal or anything. So we're sitting there. It's like the eighth inning. I'm not even super invested. I'm sitting there with Brittany. So my arm's around her, right? Sick brag. Out of nowhere, I just kind of feel this like flighting feeling like someone blew in my, on my hand. And I kind of do this. My hand is covered in snot. Okay. 
This man, who is sitting to Brittany's right, so like one whole seat over from me, just snot rocketed on my open hand. So I'm okay. holding a gob of another man's snot. Not COVID friendly at all. No. Now this is long before COVID. It was literally at that moment I had a 30 second conversation with myself and I say, Will, you're an adult. You can't haul off and punch this man in the face. I was like, you simply can't get fired over a man snot rocketing in the palm of your hand. Uh, and so, and like I talked about it with my boss and he was just like, yeah, that's tough. Because it's right on that line because like spitting on someone is the most disrespectful thing you can do as a man. But mind Shout you, out Bill Romanowski. Yeah. Right. And, and mind you, I brought it up with the guy. I didn't do nothing. I said, hey, buddy, you just like snotted on my hand. Dude goes, no, I didn't. Bro. <laughs> it was on the other side of Brittany who was looking at me. Whose snot ended up on my hand then? Dude just wouldn't cop to it. And his girl was like, dude, come on. You're snot on that guy's hand. I literally was just like... All I want is an apology. Just apologize. Dude wouldn't do it. So I just left. I was like, look, man. Like, so let me ask you. Let's say, like, not now, because, like, you know, you're, like, fully, like, fully adult. But let's say that you're 27-year-old you. How much of a beatdown from Connor does that count? <laughs> no, you see, uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Okay. <laughs> I have never... I've never been driven to the point of public physical violence, which we're going to get to these stories here, and I realize that many of you are in a very different category when it comes to that. <laughs> but my, my thinking is I have, to know, I have to know the backstory, right? I have to know what did this guy do to, or what did I do to elicit said snot rocket? Because if this is just a random act of snot violence, which that's a thing now, I'm saying, I'm saying to myself, this, this is an insane person and I don't <laughs> want to go toe to toe with an insane person because there's gotta, there's gotta be something that happened before that where you did something that really got under his skin. Like you're not even like a, a diehard Braves fan or anything like that. Is this guy, I mean, who, who could this guy have been like upset about that would drive him to the point where he says, now would be a good time to snot rocket on this fellow sitting ahead of me. I, I think he just missed, man. I think he was just trying to kind of like cock his head and it just, just came out sideways. That's what I'm saying because he wasn't angry at me at all. He had no feelings toward me. It was the most bizarre conversation I've ever had, Connor. That's frustrating, man. That is frustrating. Well, glad you got through that. That that's that's a that's a trying trying time. These are defining moments that we have as fans. And man, there there are some some of these here that are going to make you just scratch your head and go Holy cow. I, I can't, in the, in the heat of the moment, anything seems possible, but listening to it right now as we're talking in early March, some of this stuff just seems unfathomable. So let's get to it. Kirk Vickery has a great one. Kick six. He's watching with a girl. I, I hadn't been dating long. The return happens. I stayed calm up until they showed Gus. I punched a hole so hard through the wall <laughs> halfway into the apartment next to me. She left, we didn't see each other again. Uh, you think? Maybe, makes sense. Jay Woody, this one's good too. I had a neighbor come and check on me before he called the police because he thought there was a fight in my house. It was me, alone, watching an LSU Bama game. Okay, for those of you who don't know Jay Woody and have never had the pleasure 
of speaking with him. And I'm not just talking about on social media or whatever, like is, if you're in the Facebook group, you've seen Jay Woody before, there's no way you haven't. But if you haven't had the pleasure of actually having a conversation with Jay Woody, that seems impossible. That, that seems so far-fetched that I can't picture any world in which he's yelling like crazy because he is an extremely nice human being, but LSU Bama, I don't know, just makes you do, Will, LSU Bama, has it ever made you do something that was just outside of yourself? No, I honestly have gotten to a point where I just accept that the beatdown is coming and don't get too invested in it. Um, I went to the to the game of the century in 2011, and it was me like surrounded by Bama fans, and I just put my hands up and walked out, and we won. Um, so nothing ever really disrespectful. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you haven't taken that route because if you were going to, it was going to happen during that that losing streak. Dakota <laughs> Carter, this this might be a favorite, my favorite one. Dakota says, I got into a fist fight with one of my friends because he, an Auburn fan, thought it was hysterical that Bama lost to Ole Miss in 2015. I didn't take to I didn't take too kindly to that. It was also a church retreat. <laughs> That's a key detail. <laughs> that is a very important detail, and I am so glad he didn't lead with that. Clark Futch? I'm gonna say Futch. I think that's it. F-U-T-C-H. That didn't start off well for me there. Um, Clark says, I'm a house director at a fraternity in Arkansas. After Florida lost the shoe to LSU, so this is really recent, I was so belligerent and distraught, I came back to the fraternity house and shut down their party they were having and called the police on the underage guys and people smoking weed on the balcony. The next day, I acted like it never happened. Oh, this man... This man has Bloody. an ear that I don't know if I can get to. He crashed his own party, and then he did the, I don't know why the cops are here, bro. I just happened to dispose of all of my illegals hours ago. Buddy, that is that is spiteful. <laughs> you are a spiteful narc, but you know what? Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And if it made him feel better, then all right, it made him hey, feel better. He might have turned some young men's laughter around that night, all right? He could have. You never know. You never know. Sometimes you just got to throw a wooden bat at a very large tree and things change after that. Kevin Brown, he says, when Georgia lost to Boise State, got into a fight with my ex-wife's best friend's husband. Yeah, keep track of that. Okay. Because he was, she was rubbing it in, so I told them to leave. Locked all of them out of the house. She warned them to, before they came over, not to brag about Florida beating whatever scrub team they played that day. Remember, ex-wife we're talking about here. Very important detail as well. Thank you, Kevin. Andy Goins. Talk, speaking of game of the century. After the Bama LSU 9-6 game, there was an LSU fan there who brought a custom Go Tigers I should have said that like Coach O, but I'm not going to. Go Tigers. Brought a Go Tigers cake to a majority Bama fan watch party. I'm not proud of it, but me and Michael Parrish absolutely destroyed that cake in front of her. Man, if you're destroying cake, cake? Come on. We're better you know, than that. We're after a couple of these stories, it's like, I don't really mind Bama winning all the time because the alternative seems much worse. I don't know. <laughs> if we're destroying cake out here, what are we doing? What are we doing? Come on. Uh, Tristan Smith, I was watching the Tennessee-Texas A&M game in 2016 at my dad's, visiting from school, and when Josh stops through the interception, I threw the stool I was sitting on through the glass bar, and it stuck in the wall behind it. Okay, that is the perfect example 
of one of those stories which you're so angry in the moment, but then when that happens, you have this very sobering realization of, actually, that's kind of cool. I'm not not incredibly mad about that. That's kind of cool that it just stayed stuck in the wall like that. And if someone had video, Tristan, man, that talk about going viral. That absolutely would have, that would have been really great to see. Tanner Sheets, 2008, Ole Miss at Florida. Everybody knows it. I cussed Tebow out on the TV and said, Jesus wasn't real. I cussed him (laughs) during the speech. That was a bad day. Never mix wild turkey and football. Great advice. I should go on a t-shirt somewhere, not a wild turkey t-shirt. We don't have any advertising deals with wild turkey, I don't think. So I think we're good. Don't mix wild turkey and football. I think even Tebow would endorse that, probably. Um, this man totally just turned on Tim Tebow. That's hilarious. That's one of those, like, you got to be happy to cold take yourself. Like, I'm sure after the rest of that season, he was just like, okay, Tebow, you're right. Yeah. Like, yeah. As a Florida fan watching that game, though, I'm sure you have moments where when, when you're losing, when you're a team with national championship hopes and you lose to an unranked team, it's totally different than big time showdown. Maybe it's down to the wire and your team comes up just short. When you lose a game like that that you're just absolutely not supposed to, regular season college football losses have a way of stinging that nothing nothing else does. I mean, that, that's that's the beauty of the sport that I think you can get that on any given Saturday where like, you're an NBA fan, you're an NFL fan, regular season like that, you're not, come on, Tebow? Like you're not, you're not going to those lengths, but that is college football. Uh, Clark Barrage says, when a vol was made to attend, come on, man. I don't know what Clark was going for there, but I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that breathe, and hopefully somebody some like, else can interpret that. Some like Edgar Allan Poe or something there. Yeah, is that a haiku? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not, I don't know how many syllables goes into a haiku. Derek Walden, he says, didn't talk to my then girlfriend, now wife, for an hour after the 2017 national championship, which led to a fight, which led to everyone being even more mad. It's just a game. And then him saying, not this one. This was a natty. It's been 37 effing years. (laughs) Derek, you're not wrong about that. And Dakota had to chime in to the comment and he said, 41 years now. That's a bummer. Thanks, Dakota, for that. Appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, like, there's nothing, like, literally, it's just a game is, like, the only thing you can say to oh. me. Because, like I said, I don't get upset for real, but it's, like, any of those Saints losses, without fail, one of my friends has been, like, hey, man, it's just a game. And that's what I'm, like, are you kidding me, bro? Like, one of my buddies, after the, the 2017 game, the, the miracle, uh, one of my buddies said, hey, he's a Mississippi State fan. He goes, man, when Mississippi State lost in the women's basketball tournament, I felt the exact same way. I was, like, buddy, I bet you didn't. <laughs> it's all about what we've invested into it. I think that's the key thing to remember here because I'm admittedly like more of a bandwagon Chicago Blackhawks fan. When the Blackhawks are good and it's something that you know I used to talk about with my dad, uh, that, that to me, th- that gets you going in a way that it's like, all right, playoff hockey is really, really fun and you seem so into it, but are we grinding it out like watching games in mid-October? No, like we're, we're, we're not. Right. We don't have that kind of time on our hands. But I think it's all about the time investment. When you've made that sort of time investment and you've said, this this is it, this is happening this year, and you've sold yourself on that possibility, the second that gets taken away is a very, very depressing feeling. Very depressing. Kelsey Picker, she says, my freshman year in the dorms at UGA, a friend of mine took off his shoe and threw it at the TV. In the community lounge, he broke the TV. 
for the longest time, we all acted like it didn't happen and just knew not to try to watch TV on that floor's lounge anymore. I know Kelsey, and Kelsey is a die-hard, die-hard UGA fan. So the fact that she was surrounded by you know people who also could have that, that similar mindset, not totally surprising, but good for Kelsey for not being the person who threw the shoe at the TV. The TV breaking videos that always go viral. Like I remember there was the one last year, that LSU Mississippi State game, the, the opener of course, and I don't bring this up to, to like rub salt in the wound for you, but where that, that guy was at the bar with his girlfriend and the end of the game happens and this guy mm-hmm. with the, at the bar TV, I, I don't know if it was a punch or if he threw something at it, but this TV was just smashed to smithereens. And it, it's a tough look for the guy Sure, he gets to go viral and all that, but those are the most cringe things to me because when you actually like sit back and you're never going to see that really play out in real time, you always see that a couple days after the fact, it looks really, really bad. At least though, if you're listening to this and you haven't broken a TV yet, hopefully you're past that phase of life. Have you ever gotten close to that where you, I don't want to say you, you were contemplating breaking a TV or somebody else's TV, but... Is, is that a specific, I feel like that's, that has to be such a heat of the moment thing, but I always think about the financials that would go into that. I, I get two in my head when it comes to breaking TV. No, and I feel like that's one of those things where it's like you're ruining other people's night too, where it's like, yeah, because if you do that at a bar, like there's going to be some type of like insurance support at minimum. It's like, you, you don't just get to leave after you do that. Yeah. Like when Roy throws all the, the glasses at the bar after Pam finds out that or after Roy finds out that Pam made out with Jim and that's what held off their wedding and then his brother comes in and starts inexplicably throwing glasses despite the fact that he had no context with the situation (laughs) whatsoever. And then they're sitting outside of the bar and he's like, yep, I'd give him all the jet ski money. You don't just get to go home that night and just pretend like nothing happened. That's that's a low moment. That has to be a turning point moment. I would at least hope for. Um, Dallas Johns said, I cried when we lost to LSU in 2015. Crying is, it happens. I'm not going to say that I've, I'm above that. It happens. It depends on the context. It really does. But seeing seeing your title hopes stripped from you, it's it's a it's it can be a cry worthy event. I'm sure many a Georgia fan listening to this had some tears. 2017 national championship. Oh, don't have to keep bringing that up though. Uh, Bradley Zane Zemanek says uh, I found a Longhorn logo hat one time and I lit it on fire. I don't know if that's so much <laughs> fan rage. I think you're just a pyro, man. I think you're just a pyro. I think you're just a pyro. I think you look for any excuse, and uh, you found one that day. So good good for you, Bradley. Good for you, man. Uh, Kobe Morris Williams. Uh, this is, uh, I love a good broken bone story. Ooh. Probably broke my hand in celebration. I'm a little bit confused on this. Punched my grandfather's 1950s chair right on the rock solid arm. And trust me when I say that thing is sturdy. It was right after the late Jacob Eason 50 yard bomb against Tennessee in 2016. Yeah, from broken hand to broken heart. My goodness, if you got an injury after a sporting event that you didn't play in, how do you explain that? Do Do you have that conversation? Oh, you know, I can't go to the gym today, you know, I still, Kind of, I think I, I messed something up in my shoulder when I was when I was punching something after that LSU loss the other day. Like, 
is that something you tell people or is it one of those things you you have to come up with an excuse for if you're if you're rocking some sort of facial bandage which I don't think I don't think those are in anymore I think those kind of phased out with Nelly but if you're doing something like that um, I don't know that's a, that's a tough thing to have to look your employer in the eye and tell them tell them what happened especially if you're like if you're in this business in the sports media world maybe it's a little bit different you get to kind of be a fan sometimes but I don't know. I don't think you can get away with that. Yeah, that's like the pinnacle for sure is obviously like jail. And then after that, it's like ruining other people's night. And then it's like injuring yourself and having to explain it to people. Because at least for that one, you can really just be like, oh, yeah, it was a snowboarding incident. It's like, buddy, it's July. What are you talking about? (laughs) That's a bold-faced lie. We'll end with this one from Donald Hughes. Donald says, I know it's a pro game. We didn't have to include, by the way, just SEC examples. I figured that would be the vast majority, but I'm glad that somebody went outside of that because I didn't have any SEC examples because I'm not a fan of any specific SEC team. Donald Hughes says, I know it's a pro game, but I was a Cowboys fan growing up, and one time when we lost to the the R-words, we don't say this, not politically correct anymore, we lost to the Washington football team. When I was around 10 years old, I started throwing Oreos at my grandparents' TV. Needless to say, I got two whippings, one from granddad for hitting his TV and one from dad for wasting food. Of all the food to waste, of all the food to waste. Oreos? Oreos? Come on. We gotta do better. We gotta do better. It can't just be accessibility. If you're gonna have a premeditated moment of rage, you gotta know that there's gotta be a certain thing that you can reach for in the pantry and not mind wasting. It should never be Oreos. Never. For shame. For shame. That's like uh, that's like the the worst too. Is like because in that moment you get instant justice. Like it's not like the justice system gets you. It's like no, everyone saw you do that, bud. You're getting these whoopings. Ah, the the whooping after after a moment like that is just the. I mean, I guess that's a, a triple whammy because your team lost. You wasted Oreos and then you got a whipping once, twice. Man, that's a rough day. That was a rough yeah. day. The next day is always going to be better, though. That's the good news. <laughs> All right. I have an A-list first-time guest next week. I am so, so pumped about it. A great interview. I think it's one that you you all really, really enjoy. One of those where you kind of just like let him go. And some of the stories that, that this guy had, it was just, just awesome. Um, so stay tuned for that. A lot of fun to be able to do that. If you have not yet, or if you want to get a burner account on iTunes and do it, I will not stop you from doing it. Leave us a five-star review. Make sure that you like, subscribe. Definitely subscribe. If you're just listening to these episodes kind of at random, just subscribe. It's going to be easier. It's only going to be one a week. It's easy. It's not going to clog your feed or anything like that. Also, go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcasts. Go follow all of our great content on social media. Adam Spencer's doing some great, great stuff with college basketball picking up right now. We have starting five stuff that's coming out all the time. Joe Cox crushes the baseball coverage for all of you seam heads out there. That's a thing. People actually say that. Um, Make sure that you keep up with all of our great stuff that we have, not just football, on SaturdayDownSouth.com. All right. So thank you to everyone who listened. Thank you to everybody who submitted. Thanks. Talk soon.